newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed... Media Project gives you a half hour of commentary and analysis each week on media issues and what's going on in the news from our perspective here in upstate New York. I'm Rex Smith of the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union, here with Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association and former editor of the Daily Gazette, Barbara Lombardo, journalism professor and former executive editor of the Saratogian and The Record in Troy, and Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Puba, columnist, etc., Etc. Professor. Cut it out. <laughs> All right. Well, just for that, Alan, you get to go first with the notion that Donald Trump has now been readmitted, let's say, to Facebook. Facebook says, you can do this. Uh, you can be on this platform, but we're going to be watching you. We're going to be careful to make sure you don't violate our rules. And he's permission to be back on Twitter as well, but he has not done that yet. So what are the implications of that, do you think? He's back. I mean, that's a big thing. When you kick somebody off one of their channels, so to speak, and they're back and they make a presence and we all know it, it's important because if you're excluded, you're not there. And if you're not excluded, you are. What do you think about his supporters' claim and his claim that he was being targeted for his political views and that these sites ought to be restricted from doing this kind of so-called targeting? Well, that's bad news, of course, the idea that somebody would have the power to start restricting who gets to say and who doesn't. So that's a bad idea. On the other hand, as long as we've had man and womankind, people have been trying to say, you get to talk, but you don't. That's something we got to talk about. Well, I don't know, Judy, what do you think? I mean, the fact is we've got laws now passed by legislatures in Florida and Texas that say these digital sites, which are so potent, you know, they are sort of the public media space that say that they cannot deplatform someone, let's say, for their political views. Right. Let's be clear. The First Amendment when it talks about free speech, it's our free speech to talk, but it's also our free speech not to publish a particular letter or publish a particular opinion. If I'm a private company and I run a newspaper or a radio station or a social media network, I can decide what goes on and what doesn't. That's my freedom. I hear and some of these laws are coming from the opposite direction. I should be able to say whatever I want, wherever I want. Let's not forget that Donald Trump was deplatformed. He was taken off Twitter and Facebook because he was inciting violence. It wasn't because of his political views. And now Twitter said he could come back in November. He hasn't been on yet. I think he has a deal with his own true social network. He's not supposed to compete with them until I think they let him loose in the summer. But it reminds me of Susan Collins who said, oh, he's learned his lesson. Well, he hasn't learned his lesson. And watch out when he comes back. The other thing is that both Facebook and Twitter are kind of ho-hum now. All I get are ads on them. I don't turn to them as often as I 
could maybe Facebook is trying to jazz up the site by returning the you know the instigator, letting them loose and see what happens. But I believe that the platforms have the authority, the ability to choose what speech they promote and what they don't. So Barbara, let me ask you this. So I'll give you what the Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, not yet convicted of a crime, but under indictment for a long time. Anyway, here's what Ken Paxton has to say, Barbara. You tell me about this. A small number of modern communication platforms, he says, effectively control access to the modern digital public square. And he says they're claiming an absolute First Amendment right to exclude anyone they want for any reason they want without explanation. So they control the public square. Does he have a point there? He does have a point there, and this is why we're going to hear from the Supreme Court on this issue. As Judy alluded to the First Amendment, the First Amendment says the government will not make laws that abridge freedom of the press. And so then we can argue, well, okay, it doesn't prevent you from speaking, but what in there actually gives the constitutional right for publishers to decide that they're not going to publish material or some kind of content. And so it's tricky. And I think as someone who had been in the news media for a long time that you want the control of what you're going to publish and what you're going to reject. But that is also fraught with problems. So it's one thing if somebody's going to take Newsmax off their stations or if they're going to keep Donald Trump off of Facebook or Instagram. And it's another thing if it's... uh, Who's in control and what decisions, what's Elon Musk going to decide, you know, what voices are going to be muzzled? So it's it's tricky because it can affect everybody. Muzzled by Musk. And this will come before the Supreme Court because we have conflicting circuits. That is, a federal circuit court that oversees Florida has said the law that requires these companies to carry a speech is unconstitutional. The circuit that covers Texas says, no, no, we support this law. This is fully constitutional. Both majority decisions, by the way, in those circuits written by Trump-appointed conservative judges. So this is going to be an interesting U.S. Supreme Court case. And what Barbara alluded to there was an ancillary conversation going on involving Representative Elise Stefanik, who represents much of northeastern New York, including my home. Your home? And mine. Yeah. Maybe not yours, Barbara, in Saratoga. Almost. Almost, yeah. And Elise Stefanik is taking issue with Spectrum, the cable news provider, which has been unable to reach an agreement with Newsmax, a right-wing so-called news site. They're unable to get a payment deal, and so they've taken Newsmax off. It's kind of like a hospital and insurance company uh, fighting about whether they're going to be able to provide services. And Elise Stefanik is demanding that Spectrum carry Newsmax. Similar thing has happened, by the way, to uh, AON. What's the other yeah. right-wing out- operation not quite as big as Newsmax? I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Alan, speaking yeah. as a political scientist, if you would look at this and say, well, Elise Stefanik is the third-ranking Republican in the House, there's almost an intimidation factor there, isn't there? There certainly is, especially when the Republicans have the kind of controls that they have right now. So, yeah, we are now having to face some very difficult times for all of us. These are cable TV providers choosing to decide who they're choosing who they're going to do business with. DirecTV has also taken Newsmax off the air. So it's an issue of what their viewership is and also who's paying who. Uh, is DirecTV and Spectrum paying Newsmax to carry it or is, is it the other way around? Is this a bargaining ta- tactic by Newsmax trying to increase the amount of money it gets? And you have MAGA Republicans all over the country lobbying in defense of Newsmax. What Do you understand whether it's a business decision? on the part of Spectrum, or whether it's some sort of ethical uh, opinion, political, does politically it, driven? I don't, does I'm it not matter? Clear. 
Does it matter if it is a business decision or if it's a matter of uh, deciding what content they wish and not to wish to carry? Um, I, mean, I am curious to know. I'd be curious, but if you're a newspaper owned by a private entity, you have a right to decide what you're going to publish. Isn't that true of a digital platform as well? In fact, I think this is what we've been arguing often on this program, that under Section 230 of the Federal Communications Act, I'm sorry, of the um, uh, 1996 law is not called the Federal Communications Act. Anyway, the under Section 230, they are specifically exempt from being held liable for what they carry. And these platforms have always argued, well, we are just conduits for information. We shouldn't be held liable. And that is what has protected them from the same sort of decision-making that we all had to make as editors as to what was appropriate and what wasn't for our platforms to carry. What I find fascinating about these legal arguments of this issue is they are arguing that the algorithms themselves that the social media companies are using is tantamount to a publication move. And that's fascinating to me because the algorithms are a mystery to most of us. It is something they devise to promote some articles over the others and how to get greater engagement. So I think it's a fascinating legal argument. I would love to see them be declared publishers because I think in all respects they are. I agree with you about that, Judy, because that is what they are. They are a conduit, and they sh there should be ideally some kind of ethical responsibility on their part. It is interesting, too, that when you hear some arguments coming from the same quarters, from the right wing, saying these platforms ought to be held liable for their actions contributing to the deaths from drugs, you know, opioid overdoses, fentanyl. For example, there were House hearings this past week in which Republican members of the House were attacking the digital platforms for not restricting content that's put out there allegedly by drug dealers. This is with respect to Snapchat. So the company is called Snap and saying Snap ought to be held liable for the deaths of these young people from fentanyl overdoses. So why is it that they feel comfortable restricting platforms content on drugs saying, well, but they have to be forced to carry the content of the right wing. It's I wonder why. You know, and, it, and I've seen yeah. research that indicates there is no suppression of right-wing views on, on social media. That, in fact, if you look at my feed, in fact, I don't see much left-wing information on my Facebook, or Twitter, or Instagram. I think the research does not support the right-wing position that, that they are being discriminated against in this realm. Very interesting. That's Nevertheless, they will continue to claim it. Why not? Well, uh, that's true. And the, the fact that their claims are being carried widely sure. by news sources, news platforms indicates, right, that there is not a suppression of right-wing points of view, that that is actually being well covered. And one of the interesting elements is that the emergence of bots running these platforms, the strengthening of algorithms that are making these decisions as opposed to humans, the growth of artificial intelligence you would think would give these these platforms greater capacity for thoughtful editing than what they had in 2016 when a lot of Russian disinformation got into the digital stream. By the way, when I looked at Elise Stefanik's tweet attacking Spectrum, it was interesting because in fine print below it, there were clarification points that had been made apparently that artificial intelligence had surfaced countering Elise Stefanik's argument, saying here is just more clarification. It wasn't a direct counter, but it was broadening the conversation and then a little question asking me if I found that information useful. So this is how platforms have evolved in recent years. 
artificial intelligence actually is creating more balance in the content that is being put out there. And it is not so much because there is a bias by these platforms, except a bias in favor of trying to avoid the liability of carrying violent content or intentionally distorted content that divides people. They also have a bias to make a lot of money. Well, that's yeah. what's going on. <laughs> Get a lot of engagement. I think that is accurate. So, folks, if you have views on this, media at wamc.org is how you can send us your views. I'm Rex Smith here with Barbara Lombardo and Judy Patrick and Alan Shartok, and we are talking about uh, what's going on in the media these days. Here's a big bit of news. We've talked a lot, of course, about the peril to local news, not just the loss of local newspapers, but the fact that in many parts of the country, there is actually no news coverage at all. There are media deserts. It's true that newspaper employment has fallen by around 70 percent since 2006. And not only are there fewer people working in newsrooms, but those publications that survive in a lot of small communities are ghost newsrooms where there isn't really much going on. Is that the term, ghost newsroom? Ghost newspapers? Ghost newspapers, definitely. Yeah. So the question is now, there is a push to try to get the government to act and a new consortium, let's say, local journalism groups representing more than 3,000 local newsrooms have come together to create a new nonprofit that is trying to get a public policy initiative on this. What they're looking for is some relief in the form of mostly of tax credits, uh, maybe to deliver three to five billion dollars in relief for local news companies by giving them tax credits that would help. What do we think about that idea? When you give tax credits, obviously you are giving something very valuable away and you are injecting yourself into a public policy debate. And it's risky at very best. Risky, of course. To be clear, Alan, you're speaking as someone who runs an organization that gets tax credits. You know, you're a tax-free operation. Yes. And so if you had to pay taxes, you wouldn't be able to support the newsroom that you've got here, right? Not necessarily. You don't know that. You can say you would not be able to if you had to pay taxes. And yet a lot of people have to pay taxes and continue to survive. So out of hand, I would reject what you just said. So it has caused no problems for you? What's that? The fact that a public radio station oh. receives tax credits or has some benefits, like their donations to WMC would be tax deductible. Have you seen that that's interfered with your ability to run an unbiased operation? Who are you talking you, to? You, Alan. Has it influenced? <laughs> have you found that it influences I, I what you do? I have not. I have found that, you know, we do extremely well because people love the station and they support it and they give us money. And we can look for all of the downsides, but right now... I I just don't see them. Like if Congress passed a law giving you more tax credits, would you be inclined to be nicer to the congressman when they came on to talk to you? <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> Just for I'm, example. It's hard for me to be nicer to them. I'm generally very difficult. With them. I, 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 I like the idea of the tax credits, and I think that the devil will be, of course, in the details because who will 
qualify for receiving those? And how do we know that the entities that are going to receive them are going to use that money wisely to correctly, adequately cover the communities that are now not covered? In the Axios media story about how journalism groups are joining coalitions to try to come up with public policy changes and promote legislative changes like the tax credits, it mentions that they would try to incentivize community groups to buy legacy newspapers from hedge funds. And as the former executive editor of two papers currently owned by hedge funds that had been turned into ghost newspapers, pretty much, that really piques my interest. It should pique the public's interest, I think. Yeah, I think there's something to this. You know, the government has often provided subsidies or tax credits or some sort of support to industries that it considers vital. Consider the automobile industry. Consider aerospace industries, which are, in fact, directly subsidized by the government. It's actually a subsidy of construction firms that we hire them. Rather than having public employees pave roads, we have construction companies who are hired by the government to do it. So isn't public information similarly of vital public interest, and why shouldn't we have taxpayer support if it is getting that information, the information that is the fuel of democracy, into the hands of the people who make the decisions of democracy? So who will handle the flow? Right. You're right. A very good question. I mean, I think that's really crucial is who at this table just said the devil's in the details. Yeah, <laughs> go Barbara, thank you. <laughs> Lombardo, Saratoga. <laughs> but there is an issue that's in the background here is the fact that our industry is, is a different kind of industry. We're charged with holding government to account. So that makes this far more complicated. And again, the devil in the details. Do we want to be beholden to the government for help in running our operations. I know that there are, are many old timers out there who just cringe at this idea, but we've never been in this place before where we're seeing so much go uncovered in yes. terms of news. You know, they talk about the news deserts and uh, places where there are no local news. There was one report that said there were 1,800 communities that have no local news, and I'm really curious about how they define community. There's a lot more communities. And, in New York and what, alone. And what do we mean by local news? Even in Saratoga, where there's outlying villages and towns, Schuylerville and the town of Saratoga, Edinburgh, Stillwater, who's covering some of these? And, and the coverage comes and goes as the bigger entity, including the Saratogian at some points, would come in and say, now we're going to have weekly coverage in your community. And I'm thinking as we're talking to these people, yeah, so long as you guys are actually going to buy the paper or advertise in it. Right. Um, and those things were always short-lived. So some of those communities haven't been getting news for years. It is an imperfect effort. When I became the editor of the Troy paper in 1991, we had bureaus in Mechanicville and Hoosick Falls, in addition to the home office in Troy. And I think that the Gazette had an office in Oh, we had we had nine or ten offices. We had yeah. two in Albany. We had two in Fulton County. When I became the managing editor, I, w I inherited a great big jar of keys that were the keys <laughs> to all the offices. And it was full. It was, a, it was, the it cities, was bigger than a mason villages. jar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, we covered Providence, Edinburgh. We covered all of those things. We had bureaus all over the place. And the bureaus did more than just provide the reporters a place to do their work. It also gave us a forward-facing place in the community. And yeah. people even would stop in. Even the what Saratogian, do you mean by forward-facing? We're, uh, we're, we're there. We're there, a place oh, where people yeah. could walk in the door and actually see us and, and yeah. talk to oh us my and God, complain about the circulation. In yeah. the mid-90s at the Times Union, we put seven people in Saratoga Springs. Oh, Darn I you. Know it. Yes, <laughs> I, know I was painfully aware. 
I, or that? I, I, <laughs> we were all competing which for the was same the, thing. Which yeah. was the like the same number of total reporters that I had. When I came right. to the Saratogian, they had a mechanical bureau, which uh. I think was and one up in the Glens Falls area. Those right. those things were short lived, and now neither the Saratoga or Troy papers have any office at all. How do they get away with that? Well, <laughs> well, they're th- private companies. I mean, this is the point. They can do what they want, and they just don't have the financial incentive to do it. Uh, and it's unfortunate. And, and yeah. in, in saying that, in the same breath, I want to say that I give the people who are working there credit for trying to do their best with the resources that they have, that those are still both seven-day-a-week newspapers that are also online. And yeah. it's quite it's, wild. So this is asking policymakers to consider things like payroll tax credits for local news companies, consumer tax credits to incentivize citizens to buy subscriptions to local news organizations, not just print, digital as well. And I'm, I'm sure that would apply to uh, also the airwaves. Push the government to spend more of its advertising dollars with local news outlets. You know, we have certain public notice requirements that are fulfilled that way. And then the notion is to address some of the key issues that are targeting local news, like uh, state investment in local news programs uh, to make them available to people who want to, to model their local policies from those templates. So this is the notion is to help incentivize the coverage of local communities in places where the loss of that, because we know that when you don't have local news coverage, actually, not only do you have the chance for more corruption, but even tax rates go up because there's nobody watching local government. Well, that's part of why making this happen is so tricky, because I would say preponderance of people in government are very happy to not be burdened by the coverage, uh, including you know school boards, town boards, city councils. Uh, we're nothing but an annoyance and from them doing whatever they think is the right thing to do behind closed doors. And it's not like the government hasn't done this before. The Postal Act of 1792 subsidized the delivery of newspapers, you know, by setting a very low rate for news delivery, a uh, much lower rate than it costs you to send a, a letter to your friend across town. So uh, there's a history of this in the United States, and I don't think that the postal rate issue has made the press over those centuries less aggressive. And the reason they did that back in the 18th century was the fact that the government realized that getting information to the people was so important, and newspapers were the only way. This was before radio, before television, before digital, but um, how essential it was. And it applied not only to newspapers, but all sorts of periodicals. And so you increased literacy, increased knowledge about a, a whole range of things. Right. Again, your thoughts, media at WAMC.org, if you want to have some uh, input into this with Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, Judy Patrick, and Rex Smith here. Thank you all for joining us. By the way, here's an interesting bit. There's been quite Quite a lot of coverage, of course, of the shooting, the mass shootings that we've tragically seen once again in California. One of the uh, journalism issues is uh, coming from the, the Los Angeles Times, which, as you would expect, has covered the story prominently, including two main photos on the front page, one of them showing the shooter in the Monterey Park mass homicide, showing the shooter dead in his van. And this is something that is unusual. I think that we all, in making decisions about what has gone on the front page, have sometimes shied away from this kind of photograph, right? Well, you're an editor and have been a superb editor. What would your decision be? Are you talking to all of us? Yes, he was. I was talking to all of us. I was actually 
exactly <laughs> talking in that moment to uh, Rick Smith. Uh-huh. It just happens to be male. I'm sorry about that. Well, I mean, I think that each of these decisions you have to make by itself, but depending on what the photograph looks like, how brutal is it, and so on. But I've really believed that we tend to shy away too much from some of these controversial decisions, that um, while we don't usually run photos of people who are badly injured or dead, I do think that sometimes there is justification for... What is that justification? Our goal is to give people the truth. It's to tell people what's actually going on. You're sure it's not to excite them or to get their juices flowing one way or another? Mm. So this photo was not gory. It was right. looked like actually yeah. a guy sitting in the front seat of his van, and it was placed underneath uh, an image of the horror of, it, of of someone you know reacting to this tragedy. So I thought it was fairly tasteful. I agree with you, you Rex, about we are reluctant to show anything that might upset someone when they're eating their breakfast. I mean, that's one of the things we've talked about a lot. But at the end of the day, we've gotten away from you know, showing reality. I, back in the, I've seen papers from the 20s and 30s. We ran dead bodies all the time. Remember what? the mobster? Who was it, Alan? You'll remember this, the tabloid in New York City that showed the mobster uh, dead at the Italian restaurant with a cigar still clamped oh, yeah, into yeah, his. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. What was it? Well, the, I think right. the important thing for uh, listeners to understand is that these decisions are not taken lightly at news places, at news organizations, whether it's broadcast or print, and that... You know, in this case, the Los Angeles Times staff, you know, had a lot of discussion about it, and you are trying to make a responsible decision. And, and in this case, they decided that it was not so grotesque an image that it would be too tough for their their viewers to see. So, th- so they were trying to weigh it, and um, and I and I think they came to the right decision. I read a uh, Columbia Journalism report about this issue. You know, Rex went there and graduated at the top. And I believe I it was know. the New York Times looked into um, how they decided to run and not run their pictures. You know, there are times when this is essential because, I mean, remember the Oklahoma City bombing, the photograph of the child being held in the arms of a firefighter, or more recently, a photograph of uh, people lying dead in the street after a, a blast uh, from a Russian attack in Ukraine. These show us reality and help people to understand the horror, as Judy just said, of what they were seeing. And there's some real value to that. Yeah, this was mild by comparison. All right, that is all we have time what? for today. We just got started. I know, I know. I've been watching the clock, actually. 30 minutes has elapsed. <laughs> we have confidence the clocks are accurate around here. Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo and Rex Smith and Alan Shartok. We thank you for joining us this week on The Media Project. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Tingling-a-ling newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fit. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association and Barbara 
Lombardo is the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany. Listen to the Media Project online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. I don't know. ling circulation, tingling ling advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.